This is Life and Books and Everything, hosted by Kevin DeYoung, Justin Taylor, and Colin Hansen. Greetings and salutations, our fair listeners. Welcome to Life and Books and Everything. Glad to be joined with my good friends, Justin Taylor and Colin Hansen. We're going to jump right in, and uh, I'm sure everyone is binge listening to the podcast serially, and so they're caught up. And they may recall that last week we began rather uplifting fashion with some airing of grievances, pet peeves, and I didn't give Justin and Colin ample time to prepare. We'll have to revisit that. Perhaps that can be a, a uh, you know, we can return to that as just a, a look forward to feature of the program. An anniversary episode someday. Y- yeah, sort of uh, a best of greatest hits. But I thought we would do uh, in the opposite direction, and let's call it the airing of gratitude. We did grievances. Let's do gratitude. And just to to set the parameters, not looking for anything uh, too otherworldly. There's certainly, if we were really, you know, talking about the things we're most grateful for, we'd talk about uh, theological concepts Jesus. in the Lord. And, and what's that? Jesus, we're grateful we for would. We would want to say that. So mm-hmm. we're not making light of any of those things, our family mm-hmm. and salvation. But I, I want to go down to some smaller things. So sort of the opposite of pet peeves. What are some things, small uh, but big to you, it could be uh, food, it could be little blessings in life that you're realizing you missed now that we've been some parts of the country in lockdown still. Give me your list of the airing of Colin Hansen <laughs> gratitude. You don't have to start with me and Justin, we'll just take that as a given. <laughs> well, I know you guys will be with me on this one. Fat guy touchdowns. How amazing are fat guy touchdowns? Oh, I hope we can see those again sooner than later. Yes. And fat guy celebrations once they score. They tend to go hand in hand, the fat guy touchdown with the fat guy celebration. There's just something like watching that tiny little football in that big man. And their eyeballs, if the the camera can get in, zoom in on their eyeballs as they're approaching the end zone. They all have that like Mike Singletary look about them, the crazy eyes. I'm going to kill someone or I'm going to score. That's right. Did you ever score a touchdown, Colin, in your high school? No. No. Career as an offensive lineman? Well, and defensive lineman. Am I talking to two offensive linemen here? I was tight end, so it's kind of more of a receiver. (laughs) (laughs) You are the Gronk of your era, no doubt. But one play that they would do for me for a two-point conversion was called tight end dump. And I'd just literally go out like two yards and catch it. Was, I believe it may be aptly named. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, uh, I, I played offensive center and then defensive tackle at all of 195 pounds or so, nine-man football in South Dakota. So, no, I didn't. I mean, there was like a practice once where I caught one before they switched me to the offensive Colin, line. I'm sorry, I'm, but, uh, I'm derailing this, but 
out of curiosity, did you ever get hit in the head while practicing football <laughs> with anything other than a football or a helmet? No, I can't think of anything. Why do you ask? You told me one time they got hit by a stalk of corn flying oh, through Well, what I was telling you about He there, doesn't remember that, Justin. <laughs> when you're playing in the cornfields of South Dakota, the wind is sweeping down that plane. And in the playoffs, it's just corn stalks are flying everywhere. It's like negative whatever 10 degrees with a 40 mile an hour wind. And all the corn has been combined. So you get the corn stalks flying everywhere. So yes, you are referring to the last game of my sophomore year, at which point we had corn stalks. Had the corn been everywhere. detasseled? <laughs> That's one of the great regrets of my life, Kevin. I never got to detassel corn. But I, you know, let's get back to gratitude, remember? Don't, don't regret that. We're talking about gratitude yeah, okay, here. Okay, give us the list. And Keep I going. Also, I love peaches. I mean, that is a Southern thing that is, is hard to, I mean, I know there's peaches everywhere. You can get them, but it's kind of like they say there's pineapple and you're thinking, well, yeah, I mean, I grew up with that from the can and everything. Like, no, 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 no. You ever had pineapple in Hawaii? That's the, okay. Well, that's like peaches in Alabama and Georgia. So love that. We're in that peach season now as well. And this is a little bit more serious, but it's relevant to the podcast. Books, my goodness, the amount of books the accessibility of books, uh, historic and present, the, the making of books, of which I'm grateful there is no end, um, the the cost of them and the ability to be able to access them. Access them. I mean, I, I know that, I mean, I think back to the little bookstore uh, in the town of 5,000 near where I grew up in South Dakota, and I, I regret that that place closed like 15 years ago. But then I think my whole world was pretty much limited to what I could find in the library, the Carnegie Library there, and then also at that little bookstore. But now I can get whatever book I want shipped for a pretty reasonable cost in most cases almost immediately to my house. How amazing is, is that? Amazing. So a lot of reasons for gratitude. Okay. Uh, I, I have a longer list, and then we'll get to Justin. And once I started making this, I saw some themes that have to do with either sports or the very short list of foods that I can eat or am willing to eat. As people may know, uh, I've been very picky, selective, uh, uh, you know, maybe a disorder, probably should get a scholarship or something. But then I was diagnosed with celiac. So now I have an excuse for all sorts of things that I can't eat. So let, let me give you my list. Okay. I, I like, I really like Mountain Dew. Isn't that horrible? Straight up Mountain Dew? Straight up Mountain Dew. And and I never really had pop, as we call it, soda down here. Yeah, they don't call it here. Pop. Uh, I, I didn't have, and then I think when I got celiac, I started craving empty calories. And Mountain Dew does the trick for empty calories. So, in fact, I have a little, okay, this is moving into my airing of grievances. When you're with people oh, no. in polite company, and you can have any any pastor, any author, any speaker can get a Diet Coke. And, of course, he's very civilized. You say, I, ma'am, do you have a Mountain Dew? And it's <gasps> shock and guffaw. Like, I just came in there on my skateboard. And then when they sell only Coke products and I ask for a Mellow Yellow, then it's just bonkers. <laughs> Kevin, this happened to me last week. I had a friend come over. I cracked open a mellow yellow zero and he said, is that a mellow yellow that you're drinking? And I said, only the greatest drink ever invented. 
Okay. And so- I was, I was, I, I was supposed to have been truly embarrassed about this, but I'm saying Leah it now in bought front some- of all dozens of listeners. So Leah bought some generic mm. Mountain Dew the other day from hy V, and it was a Diet Mountain Holler. <laughs> So if you really want to feel like a hillbilly, crack open a <laughs> mountain, mountain holler. Well, there is nobody cool, though, in public, like driving down the road with a big gulp of Mountain Dew. Like that's well, not your guy who's on the fast track to becoming a partner at the law firm. He's not on the conference circuit. What? <laughs> well, little known fact, there's a, there's a man in our church who used to work for an ad agency, and he tells me that he came up with the name Mellow Yellow. His, his boss said, what, what what should we call this? And he said, well, it's mellow, it's yellow. I, I, or at least he confirmed it to his boss that it was a good name. I can either confirm or deny. <laughs> okay, I, I have more. Um, fruity Pebbles are gluten-free. That is a great blessing to me in life. Lucky Charms are gluten-free. Uh, what do they have in them? Just sugar? I mean, I don't get rice? it. What is- it's a rice. Rice. Or, yeah, I mean. Okay. Yeah, fruity pebbles are rice where you find where they grow colorful rice. Um, I, I am grateful the short term parking at the Charlotte airport is like five dollars more than the long term parking. So I just park there and, and there's spaces and I just walk right off. Someone gave me that great tip. Just park, even if you're gone for five days, park at the short term parking. Costs you just a few bucks more. All right. I love people don't know this, but I love bluegrass. I don't play that, but I, I like bluegrass oh, music. I don't know that. Yeah, I like mowing my lawn, straight lines, order. Uh, if I don't have, you know, if, if I need a break on a Saturday afternoon, I like grape juice. In fact, when I go to a breakfast place, I'm just chagrined. I think grape juice should be second or third juice. And it's usually, you get down five, six juices. And I don't know how many times I say, do you have a grape juice? Um, grapefruit? Do, do I look like I'm 80 years old? No, I don't want grapefruit <laughs> juice. I want grape juice, but no, they don't, they don't carry grape juice. Okay. Last one. And I'm, I'm sad that we're not going to have this, this summer, uh, not just the Olympics. That's obvious, but my family for several years have, we watch American Ninja Warrior mm. and it's a good thing for the whole family to watch. And, uh, we've been watching this past week. They are replaying on the Olympic channel, the 2017 and 2019 track and field world championships. And that, let me tell you, that has been just as good the second time around. So I am thankful anytime I can watch a track meet on TV. Justin, what are you thankful for? Uh, Thankful for gluten. Yeah, I bet you are. It does make the world (laughs) go round. Sorry. Pizza ranch would be uh, high Uh, on our list. Yes. Sorry. Kevin, these are not very encouraging, are you? Are no. you? you actually didn't tell us, like, come up with funny gratitude things. So all of mine are, like, good Semi-serious. health, kindness of strangers, uh, family <laughs> who loves me. Oliver. <laughs> <laughs> I still have not read it. Uh, yeah, on the, the lighter side, the Nebraska Cornhuskers, I hope that we have college football this fall. But it is truly something I enjoy. And... Uh, there are roots to it beyond just kind of sports idolatry of going back to uh, memories with my dad going to games and watching the nineties when we used to win national championships, just like the bulls would every mm-hmm. few you were years. Spoiled. You were spoiled uh, we were spoiled. Yeah. Growing up, like 
yeah, the Bulls win, the Nebraska Cornhuskers win. But it even goes back to my my grandfather. So there's just a special place in my heart that comes Saturday mornings and the Saturday afternoons, Saturday evenings in the fall. It's a uh, something to look forward to. I do love pizza. I don't like Mountain Dew, but I like Diet Mountain Dew. Um, Diet. Yeah, those two are That's very different. I used yeah. to like Mountain Dew. I can't. I can't handle it anymore. Diet Mountain Dew. I don't like. But again. Tip to the wise, Mellow Yellow, Mellow Yellow Zero, both good. Colin, you know a lot about Mellow Yellow and Mountain Dew. <laughs> <laughs> How many insights does this guy have? <laughs> oh, no, but just, that, was, that was a classic Gaffigan yeah. moment there. I liked uh-huh. it. Oh, but just the, the genuine things of, uh, you know, I'm grateful for sleep. I, I've known people who cannot get a good night of sleep or, or struggle uh, with insomnia and 98% of the time I'm going to sleep before I want to go to sleep. I'm, you know, falling asleep. I stay asleep other than if one of our children wakes us up, but, um, and just the joy of, of family, uh, that God has given each of us wives and, and children. That is a, a great blessing. I don't take for granted, uh, grateful for new morning mercies. Again, I'm going more serious than you guys. No, but thanks for really, uh, moving us in yeah, a yeah. direction. Yeah. No, we can I go had, back to Meliello if you guys I had want. fat guy touchdowns. That's what I had. <laughs> that was number one on your list. New morning mercies, um, hashtag crossway bestseller. True. True. Thank True. you to our sponsor. Yes. Um, no, I was thinking about this the other day, just that, I mean, God could have very easily created it so that we don't sleep, right? We just, you know, the sun doesn't go down and we, maybe we only live 50 years, but we are twice as productive and put in 90 hour work weeks. But there's something about the rhythm of every day, no matter how much you mess up and you fail and uh, feel unproductive it's it's a, the sun comes up and there are new mercies um, from the lord in the morning and i'm, I'm really grateful for that uh, especially grateful in this kind of pandemic season for employment um heart really goes out for those who are underemployed or unemployed everybody on twitter talks about working from home and um you know if you're in the trades you're not working from home um if we're in lockdown and that just to be employed, but to work at a place like Crossway where I really believe in what we're doing and, and love the sort of books we're producing. So, and then yeah, to, to piggyback on Collins books are just such a great gift. Um, it, it really struck me reading Alistair McGrath's biography of J.I. Packer that in 1945, virtually no Puritan books are in print. Mm. Like, yeah, if you're interested in John Owen, you're interested in wow. Baxter, you want to get Bunyan stuff like, too bad. Unless you go to Oxford University Library, you're not going to be reading Puritan books. And if you are, you're going to be reading them in these big dusty tomes. But uh, to have all of that wisdom now just available at our fingertips, um, there's a lot to be grateful for. And, and Millie Yellow. And <laughs> you, you've prompted me to uh, maybe say something slightly more edifying. And that's just to think of how easily the, the things that I might want to harumph about or feel stressed about are, are the very things that almost anyone in the world would, you know, trade places with, or so many people, I mean, oh, I, I my house is a mess and I, I got to clean a house. Well, I have a house and there's a lot of things in the house, which is why it needs to be cleaned. Or all, all these kids need to be put to bed and fed and bathed. Well, you have a house full of children. You've been given that gift. Uh, you feel overwhelmed, stressed at work, you have a job, you're busy, you have lots of things to do. And uh, I, I know it's 
I'm sure I've been insensitive at times in rattling through struggles and then they're real struggles at times and, and not thinking of how many people might be listening and think, wow, I, I trade some of my blessings for some of your problems. So thank you, Justin, for uh, being more spiritual than my question (laughs) allowed. Uh, let's, we didn't talk so much last time and we don't have to spend a lot of time, but just, uh, as states one by one and sometimes region by region move out of the stay at home orders and we continue to see, uh, although the, the, the number of deaths has decreased yet it's, it's largely a plateau. And so the, the total number is still increasing and it does seem like as we now move out of the, uh, we're all together in this to we're all apart in this meaning we've fallen into our, or maybe not fallen. We've decided to move into our familiar postures. It's almost like as a country, our coping mechanism with all the unknowns, what we know how to do is form very regimented sides. And uh, as I was reading one person right in the past week, uh, the culture war is is necessary at times, but there comes a point where it's almost like you, unless you're doing culture war stuff, you don't know what to do with yourself and with your your life. You and I, uh, the three of us, were, were talking about that uh, little back of the envelope uh, chart that somebody put out on Twitter that shows things were bad, now they're worse, and if you do what I say they all get better. If you don't do what I say, everything continues to get worse. And that's sort of what my Twitter feed looks at times. Uh, so I, I don't know if I want to ask you guys if you venture any predictions, because whatever predictions we might make about uh, the coming weeks and months or years will probably prove to be inaccurate. But Colin, perhaps I'll start with you. What, why is this so difficult to really know what's happening we have the smartest people in the world looking yeah. at this, trying to solve it, trying to give an analysis of it. And why is it so difficult to really know what's happening and what to do? And yet, why are we still so prone to want to make very bold pronouncements about it? It seems like as I continue to get closer to 40 years old, I find more and more and more occasions to realize how old I am. And because I come across 40, it's, it just starts falling apart. (laughs) It's not just that I'll have a a quote from Seinfeld or from Anchorman or something like that, that just, you know, somebody has no clue about, but it's, it's bigger events that form our mental architecture to be able to think through situations like this. And so everybody has the big, category in their mind, even if they were pretty young at the time, they have a pretty big category for 9-11 in their mind. And I think that's created a lot of discouragement for people because they think, well, gosh, I don't see the unity that I remember from 9-11. I don't see the, the purpose. I don't see the recovery. I don't see the patriotism. I don't see any of that. And I, I agree. I think that's that's been frustrating. It's been discouraging. I was talking with our our staff at the Gospel Coalition today and was mentioning to them that of all the things we needed in this world, it did not include a lot more time at home 
by ourselves in front of our computers on social media. True. And yet, of course, that's exactly what's happened. So part of it's just, this is one of the first major crises that we've dealt with. This is the reason why social media has been such a major theme on this podcast. But people have that category of disappointment from 9-11. But I'm telling you guys, I don't know what you guys think of this, but I think this is more, this feels to me more like 2004. And 2004 was a presidential election year, of course, as we're dealing with right now. 9-11 was right after a very contentious presidential election um, through Florida, Florida recount and everything like that. But it was early on in President Bush's tenure, and he was going to be there for another three years. And um, 2004, though, presidential election, and you started to have, there was a lot of unity early on with the Iraq war. Not universal unity by any means. But of course, you famously had people like, um, you know, Senator Biden, Senator uh, Clinton, who had voted to authorize the Iraq invasion. And so there was a lot of, you know, unity there, especially around the presentation. Remember the famous presentation at the United Nations about the weapons of mass destruction. Then as 2004 approached, the war was not necessarily going the election, not quite as well as everybody hoped it was going to go. They didn't quite welcome the American troops like Dick Cheney had said that they would. Um, there was still a lot of violence. And then there was the search for weapons of mass destruction. Where were they? That was the reason we did this. That's the reason with the United Nations. That was the authorization from, the, from, the, from Congress, all that kind of stuff. And you had this fork in the road moment of either we're going to discover these weapons of mass destruction and then perhaps it'll be a justified decision. Because everybody agreed, of course, that Saddam Hussein was a bad guy and that the world would be better off without him. That wasn't the issue. But then the other option was maybe we don't ever find these weapons of mass destruction. And it turns out it was a horrible decision and we never would have done this before. But you, you had this kind of fork in the road. And so what I feel like right now is that there was a lot of unity early on in the coronavirus of we've got a lockdown. And it wasn't a lot of talk of necessarily what's the rebuild going to look like? What's the reopen going to look like? Just like with Iraq, it was, there was no discussion about, okay, what government replaces Saddam Hussein and the Ba'athist regime. So there wasn't a lot of discussion, discussion about that. And then you get into it and you're like, okay, it's going and going. Well, it's not quite going as we expected it to. It's still bad, but it's very confusing. And I feel like we're waiting now on a smoking gun or the lack of a smoking gun to say, was that an overreaction? Should we have not done that? Or, well, yeah, actually, it was it was horrible, and and yeah, we had to take these drastic measures, and so that's what it feels like to me. That's why I don't feel like the unity of nine eleven is there because I don't think it's analogous. I think it's more analogous to the two thousand and four situation, and we're in a waiting process. Who's going to turn out to be right? And what does it mean? What do you guys think about that? I think- Am I totally off, Justin? Sure. Um, <laughs> sure, you are totally off. I think one of the differences, and I think it is enlightening to think back to 2004, and I, I may take it in a little bit of a different direction, but um, one of the things that's different about this is that it's there's no way to falsify whatever you believe. Right. So yeah. if you think like, we're going to have a million deaths unless we do a lockdown, like your view is essentially unfalsifiable because you can never run like an experiment where you have a control group where with uh, the Iraqi invasion, the invasion of Iraq, you had something like either there are weapons of mass destruction or there are not. And therefore either you were correct in terms of your justification or you weren't. But this is a situation where like, 
essentially you can't be proven wrong because you can just always point back to, well, if we had done what I thought we should have done, then uh, this terrible outcome wouldn't have happened. Uh, when you talk about 2004, for me, I think back to my own awareness that I don't have all of the answers. I don't have all of the facts, but based upon what I know now, am I justified in believing this? I really did wrestle with that question because I think back then I blogged more about politics and uh, may have made my known, my views known and people would push back. I was thinking I could be wrong, but I think looking back based upon what I know at new at the time, based on the evidence available to me, I do think it was a warranted decision to support the invasion. Even though in retrospect, you look back, you see how facts have changed and you might change your mind. But um, like, I don't think that George Bush lied. I think he was incorrect. So there, I think there are some parallels in terms of public epistemology and what do we have access to. And, and we talked about this, I think, in the first episode. None of us are experts. Yeah. Um, and even if you have studied uh, infectious disease your entire life, you're still not an expert on all sorts of other things related to this. So I, I think that's one of the things that makes this so tricky. It's tempting to say, just trust the scientists. But science can tell you what an enzyme is. It can give you some results of studies. But there's all sorts of other factors at play here, like wisdom issues and social issues and predictive issues that even the experts don't really have a, a corner on all the different aspects of the debate. And then you throw in the partisanship. I mean, people who just deeply, deeply want President Trump to fail and others who deeply want him to always be right about everything. Throw that into the mix. And uh, it's really a difficult thing, I think, to sort through what's true and what's false and what's wise and what's unwise. And Quick, you could, uh, another another example, Justin, just on that's a difference. And then Kevin, you, you can jump in here. Is that in in two thousand four? Other than maybe how you might vote in the presidential election, it didn't matter what your view of the Iraq War was or weapons of mass destruction. It wasn't an actionable point unless you were going to sign up for the military and you were going to join. Okay. That was a minority of people who were in that position and most people's partisan views were already formed. And so they weren't necessarily making those decisions in this situation. Every single family, even husbands and wives disagreeing about what to do, every single church, every single city, every business, every state, everybody has to make a decision on what and on the information that's available to them. No wonder it's so contentious. And you had said uh, earlier, Colin, that it, it, it does seem to be shaping up to a, a winner-take-all. and. Yeah it's just human nature and it's, you know, part of the problem of our politics as well is we, we don't allow other people to change and we certainly don't allow our own minds to be changed. And so once you are on record in a strong way for one outcome, I think we talked about this in earlier podcasts in a perverse way, you, you, you start rooting for unemployment to go up or death tolls to go up or, uh, somebody to be proven wrong in a way that's catastrophic, and yet it makes your side seem right. And so it does seem like, uh, although w we know that whatever happens, you know, people will be able to spin it whatever which way they want. That if you would have done what I said, this bad thing wouldn't have happened. It does feel like we are setting ourselves up for a winner take all, and especially in a 
in an election year, that's just going to be ramped up even more. I want to take it in, in a related direction. Uh, and that's to think about the, the role that authority and trust for authorities play. And this, there's been a lot in the past couple of months in particular about conspiracy theories. And, you know, one person's conspiracy theory is another person's, you know, speaking truth to power. That's, that's what's difficult about conspiracy theories. Uh, there was a long article in The Atlantic, was it over the weekend, about Q Anon, you know, this anonymous source and some of these, uh, well, I'm just going to say fever swamps of uh, online communities that gets mixed in with a sort of super Pentecostal evangelical Christianity at times. It was, it was bizarre and frightening. And I admit I, it was, all of that was new to me. What's not new to me are, is the penchant that we have for believing conspiracies, but it, it, it's a hard conversation. And I want you guys to jump in because the three of us could easily talk about, you know, why, why do, why do people believe conspiracy theories about whatever it is, you know, Bill Gates trying to form a one world government and make a billion dollars off of vaccines. And yet the fact of the matter is, you know, history, you know, at times, uh, you know, our government was doing shady things. So some of the examples which seem, and I would say are really silly, uh, what makes them so hard to disprove again, to your point, Justin, is they, they really, the, almost the wilder the accusation, the harder it is to falsify. And, uh, you know, I was reading someone who, who made this point. We're going to, I don't want to talk about vaccines, but just use that as, as, a, as a test case. Any of us, and I think Alistair Roberts made this point, um, that any of us, if you get about, you know, two articles into the vaccine debate, it's beyond the head of 99% of us. We don't really know the science. So you're, you're trusting an authority. And it's not so much that people believe in different things, different theories, because they don't trust authorities. They trust different authorities. So if you, you know, four years ago, were a big follower of Jen Hatmaker, and she said, I really looked into the issue of homosexuality, and she changed her mind. I'm going to change her mind. Well, we can say, have you read all of these evangelical biblical scholars? Well, no. And we might lament that they're not listening to authorities, but actually they're listening to a different authority. And in that case, they're believing that, um, you know, a a home renovation blogger has the authority that they're looking for. So it becomes very difficult because at the end of the day, to use a tired cliche, um, the reason we don't believe certain conspiracy theories is in at least in some measure, because we trust that mainstream science has something reliable to say, or we know people who know people in certain positions, and we aren't inclined to believe the bizarre scenarios that are out there. What what do you guys say to people? And, le- and let's let's not think of those with ill motives who are looking to harm people or just eager for strange theories. Let's talk about people that are genuinely uh, reading things online or hearing things from their friends 
or finding some pastor out there who says something, and uh, without any ill motives, they believe one of these conspiracy theories. What what do we say to mitigate against this very real danger? I think it is a pastoral issue, and I think that it's probably only going to increase in the years ahead. Uh, I think you guys are on the same page as me and thinking these things aren't going back. The genie is not going back in the bottle, and things are not going to get easier. Just there's so many dynamics that tend towards this. And Kevin, you alluded to the QAnon article in the Atlantic, and I would just, for any listener out there who hasn't read it, it's worth Googling it and reading it. It's really long, but it is something probably that we should know about. Uh, it happened to be just before I read the article that uh, one of my wife's friends uh, sent a message and just said, I've got uh, a close friend who's really uh, into QAnon and I don't know what to say and nothing that I say uh, seems to make any difference and doesn't resonate. So do you have any resources on this? So it's going to get worse, I think. Um I think the most striking thing to me in that article is the line where the reporter asked the woman, what evidence do you have that this is true? And her response was, what evidence do you have that it's not true? And I mean, that's a very frightening mindset and proposition. And I I think it can lead to just downright cultish thinking. But I, I think evidence is a significant thing to get back to your question, Kevin, of, so what do you do? How do you work through issues? And there's no clear-cut, easy answer, but I think to ask what is the evidence and is it publicly verifiable evidence? Um, I don't think that by and large, we are great at thinking logically, spotting fallacies. Kevin, you've probably done more reading than uh, the two of us on uh, not only logical fallacies, but fallacies in terms of numbers and statistics. Um, that's a significant area that I would encourage Christians to bone up on your logic, bone up on uh, statistical mistakes and inferences that people can make. So if if things seem sketchy, if things are putting two and two together, if it feels like there's a lot of guesswork, um, I think we should all just be aware that with a well-produced documentary or presentation, you could pretty much convince most people that any bizarre thing is plausible. So just to go into things not being wooed and awed by presentation, by um, high-level vocabulary, the citing of experts, we need to look for evidence. We need to think through things logically. We also need to ask, okay, this, this person maybe has a PhD from UCLA, what other things do they believe? What other things do they say? What are what are some of their other claims? I think that Christians should be able to sniff out truth. And there may be things where we say, I don't know how to answer that, or that's a good question. I'd have to look into it more. But we don't want to be gullible and naive. There's nothing uh, virtuous about that. So that's I, at least I, be, would be a starting point. And that's really good. And I wonder if it's helpful to just realize that some of the basic contours of some conspiracy theories are recycled from generation to generation, and the the culprits just get swapped out. So, you know, a basic storyline is there is a small group of people somewhere who are all in cahoots to overthrow, and they're really pulling all of the strings and calling all the shots behind the scenes, 
And it's this small group of, so, you know, in an earlier century, it, that would have been the Jews. Protocols or, of the elders of Zion. Yeah. That's right. Or it could have, or the Illuminati, or from the Simpsons, the Stonecutters, which keep, make Steve Gutenberg a star. Um, or now it's the, the billionaires or a, a class of, uh, you know, national, not nationalists, but globalists. And it's the same sort of meta narrative as it were. There's a small group of people, they're out to get us. And again, it, you, because by definition, these are groups working in clandestine, whatever you say is just further proof that they're probably doing it. Because um, you don't see it, you don't know it. Of course, there's not evidence to it. And you would you would hope that Christians would be able to at least sniff that out. Um, we, we believe in total depravity, so we believe, yeah, people are capable of really bad, rotten things. But I also instinctively find it very hard to believe that in doing those bad, rotten things, they are invariably a group of super geniuses who keep it cloaked from ages to ages, uh, which have accrued godlike powers to manipulate people on the globe. Colin, w- what do you say as we think about conspiracy theories in the church? Go ahead, Justin. What were you going to say? Well, yeah, just to jump in really quickly, because I know Colin's got a lot of thoughts and they're going to be much better thoughts than I have. But what you said, Kevin, just reminds me of, I think, a really crucial point that a lot of people try to buttress conspiracy theories by defending the fact that conspiracies have existed in human history, which is not a good refutation of them. Of course, there are conspiracies. There's criminal conspiracies. Conspiracies happen all the time. Watergate was a conspiracy. So when we speak against conspiracy theories, it's not denying that people have conspired together to do things. It's more along the lines of what you're saying, that it's this uh, multi-generational, multinational secret thing that there's there's no evidence and everybody somehow is successfully keeping this as a lie until a YouTuber discovered uh, putting a number of things together and, and broke the case open. That's more of the connotations, yeah. I think, of conspiracy theory. Go ahead, Colin. Sorry. Now, Joe Carter had a really good, really good article on this topic for the Gospel Coalition. And what stood out to me in that article was how he discussed the issue of slander as it relates to these conspiracy theories. And so, Justin, you had mentioned that you you can't verify this information. Well, that's a major problem for Christians to be sharing information about other people that they do not know to be true. Just on the presumption that it could be true because of some sort of some sort of grudge against that person, that's actually a category of sin. That's a serious thing. But I guess well, where would we be in social media if there wasn't the sin of slander? What would we talk about on social media? So that's one one thing that stood out there from from Joe. Another is that the 9-11 attacks, which Let's be clear, this is not like the right has a market cornered on this kind of stuff. I mean, look what happened with 9-11 and all the conspiracies that came from the left in the United States. And that's what took me out to Washington, D.C. Originally, I was going to be working on uh, Homeland Security uh, 
committee that had just been created ended up working for the House Republican Conference instead, and uh, Congressman J.C. Watts. But one of the things I walked away from, it was a really valuable lesson working in Washington, D.C., was if you ever have to choose between conspiracy and competence, um, or, or conspiracy and just sort of like incompetence, I should say, choose incompetence. That's right. These are just these are normal people, and I would say that whether or not your your conspiracy is about Washington D.C. or if your conspiracy is about the Gospel Coalition, I mean, trust me, <laughs> incompetence. Choose incompetence. Will be a answer <laughs> that would be. I will gladly help you with that one. Choose incompetence on that one. So that's that's one issue. But then the last thing, I just wonder if. I try to. I want to speak into areas that I have some measure of expertise in, and and try not to con, you know to contribute to this problem. So one of my areas that I do understand pretty well is media dynamics. And think about this: if you have a talk show for four hours every single day, do you think people are more likely to listen if you a say, "All right, well today the experts are telling us to do X." I don't, I'm not an expert in these things. I'm an entertainer. I just speak well on the radio. So I think you should do what the experts tell you to do because generally, you know, I think that's that's who I trust in. Or the alternative being spend four hours a day saying, forget those experts. I'll tell you what's really going on here because I know how this really works. And you can have the inside information if you just listen to me. I don't know if anybody's ever read the the novel, The Plot Against America by Philip Roth. Um, HBO has done a series on it. And that is a major role. Actually, you can't quite tell if it's sympathetic or not, but there's a major role being played by a talk show host in there who's exposing a radio host who's exposing this plot against America in there. And you just understand, people, we need to, we need to be clear about the incentives that media have to be able to promulgate this and to sell it to us. Last point is that then what do you do? Okay, what, so are you left just helpless? Well, here's what I do. And I don't know what you guys think of this, but this is the best I can come up with. I try to find people who have incentives at cross purposes from each other. I'm not saying just like triangulate two different people. Think about individuals who have cross purposes in inside themselves. There's no clear incentive one way or another. Here's what I've come up with, and I'm going to connect it back to my to our favorite things. College football writers. Let me explain what I mean. You guys may have seen, and you've probably tracked this before, listeners have as well. Sports media has gotten really liberal in the last right. 10 to 15 years. It's such a strange phenomenon. They used to be such a conservative field. It's totally flipped now. But if we don't have college football, if we don't have the NFL, if we don't get some sports real soon, all of these folks are going to get laid off. You're not going to have a sports talk radio station anymore. The athletic website's going to go under. ESPN's going to continue to have major problems. They've already done the Last Dance documentary. Now what are they going to do? It's just going to be cornhole for the whole summer. Yeah, if, if they can get, get some... MJ to do some cornhole. Yeah, exactly. Then we would have it. So I'm looking Somebody at college football. Somebody got mad at MJ over cornhole, then he can... <laughs> I took it personally. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) He told me I couldn't be the best in the world at that. I I laughed at him. So college football writers, they're very liberal generally, which inclines them toward believing sort of the experts and lock down everything. But they lose their jobs if that happens. Also, think about this. 
college campuses. It's a wonderful cross purpose. They need sports to be solvent. They need students to be solvent, but at the same time, they don't want to get in trouble. So you can trust that at some level, they have every interest in getting things back up and running as soon as possible. But at the same time, instinctively, they're a little bit resistant to do that. So I just find generally, I pay attention to what those folks are saying because they're trying to balance those things because they're working at cross purposes for each other. They don't have an incentive to lie to you. I got to tell you guys, a lot of people have an incentive to lie to you. Yeah. Let me just give two quick thoughts on what we might be able to do. One, as a pastor, very practically, um, teach your people at some point. Uh, I say this if if you share my theological grid, I guess. Teach your people how to uh, appropriately read Revelation, Daniel, apocalyptic literature. Now, you don't have to be an Amil uh, like I am, you know, the, but so many people, this gets grafted on to a very bad hermeneutic of apocalyptic literature that the 666 doesn't have anything to do with the Roman Empire, of course, Seven Hills, nothing to do with the Roman Empire. Uh, the Mark of the Beast is, uh, you know, a code, something that's going to be implanted. We need to help our people read those texts as that in a way that would have made sense to a first century Jewish audience, familiar with the Old Testament, thinking of Revelation, and under the heel of the Roman Empire. So that's one thing without doing a lecture on Revelation. Second, uh, sometimes it really is quantity over quality, meaning if you read your Bible 10 minutes a day and you go to church, let's say you go to church twice, you get a Bible study for an hour and you get an, an hour uh, worship service and a 40-minute message from your pastor that would be considered a very serious Christian in our culture. And you add it up and you got about three hours of God's word or some sort of Christian Orthodox influence. And if you're listening to podcasts, okay, we're not against podcasts, not against radio, not against, you know, not saying you only can listen to sermons on the radio, nothing like that, but we just have to be mindful of what we're putting in. And if you're putting in, dozens of hours of of input from some other source whatever that is that's going to have that can't but not shape you in some way whether it's podcasts talk radio news um scrolling your social media feed we just have to be mindful we are being affected by this that i i think if you had the the person who's reading good books at night and they're having a Bible study and they're in the word. And yes, they're aware of what's going on in the world. But the main thing that's coming in is not all of this other noise. There, There's a built-in kind of self-acquired filter that keeps out. Uh, I mean, it is, it's whatever is good and whatever is excellent, whatever praiseworthy. Think on these things. Justin, a last word before I turn us to books. Yeah, TGC colleague Brett McCracken uh, has a book coming out, and uh, you can find the TGC article on the Wisdom Pyramid that I think goes along, Kevin, with what you were saying there, that just like there's the food pyramid that should have kind of a more foundational level, the the Bible becomes that for us, and uh, you, you go on up, and I think he's got Twitter at the very top, you know, <laughs> that's the 
the junk food, you can have that once in a while. But if that if you try to make that the foundation of your diet, you're really asking for these sort of problems, that I think, that Kevin identifies. Good. All right. Books. Here's my question for you today. We're talk biographies. Now, we could just go on about the dozens of biographies you love, but let's just try to narrow it down. It's like picking your favorite child, I know. But give a few, about Christians or non-Christians, a few biographies that have been especially enjoyable to you. Now, we'll put out the caveat, maybe you read it 20 years ago and you, you, you can't you know, vouch for everything that's in it now, but when you read it, it hits you, you loved it, and it's been one of your favorites. Colin, give us some of your favorite biographies. Man, what a great question. This is this is fun. Um, so I, I, this is a question that I asked when I was really starting to become a serious reader. And I ta- asked my pastor, hey, what are, what are some biographies that you think I should read? And it just made a huge difference in my life. So in, in that vein, I start out with Roland Bainton's Martin Luther biography. I mean, simple, simple right there. Um, I think just about anybody can read that one. Luther is going to be a pretty central figure. Sticking within the Reformation, Bruce Gordon's Calvin biography, really appreciated. Sticking within our evangelical tradition, uh, I know, Kevin, you just talked about how you just read it. Uh, George Marsden, Jonathan Edwards is absolutely excellent. And what a wonderful example of being able to combine social history and and theological history. Uh, A few more here. I've got, um, I recommend this to all incoming seminary students, and that is Peter Brown's Augustine of Hippo. Uh, That's um, been a little bit harder, but if you don't understand Augustine and his central role within the Western theological tradition, it's going to be hard for you to make sense of a lot of different things. And it really situates Augustine within his time. Uh, the last two that I would mention are kind of um, they're a little bit they're a little bit different. Um, one is I might not think of as a biography, but Unbroken by Lauren Hill, Lauren Hillenbrand about Louis Zamperini is of course just I still it's crazy to me that I still find people who have not read this book. So that's the recommendation. Just absolutely one of the most gripping and food for a really interesting spiritual thought because the author in this case fundamentally misunderstands her character. But as a Christian, you'll be able to pick up why. Last one I wanted to mention is Niche, um, but it's one that I know when I read it, I just gushed to you guys about. It's not a new one. It is Chaplain to the Confederacy about Basil Manley Sr. by Mm. James Fuller. It's been been out by 20 years. But I think if, if you are in the sort of reformed evangelical space, and you don't understand the antebellum period very well, and the dynamics that relate to the Civil War and the division between North and South, you cannot do better, I don't think, than reading this biography to see just how connected Northern and Southern Reformed evangelicals were and the role that the Civil War played in that. And I've got to give a shout out here to um, one of the best lines I have ever read in a biography. It comes from an absolutely harrowing situation where Basil Manley Sr. is the pastor of First Baptist Church of Charleston, South Carolina. There's a slave, that slave member of his church. She's sleeping with her, her owner, which is obviously, as we look back now, you can clearly see that that's a rape situation. She's, she's doing this against her will. But the church has to discipline her 
for sleeping with somebody who's not her husband. Well, the pastor realizes, Basil Manley Sr. realizes the essential problem here. And so what does he do? James Fuller has one of the best lines I've ever read in a biography. It says he bought her body to save her soul. He bought her. He bought it a slave to save her from her master. My goodness, that just that just grips me. And so, remarkable one that probably remarkable book that probably not many people have read. No, I haven't read it. Justin, what's on your list? Yeah, there's some overlap there. Um, Ian Murray's uh, biography of Jonathan Edwards, I think, was one of the first uh, serious Christian biographies that I've read. That would be an interesting one for somebody to pair with George Marsden's biography of Edwards. Um, Murray was groundbreaking in many ways um, and, and really introduced the evangelical reformed world to a lot of great saints from the past through his publishing work and through his biography writing. Um, but the way in which he did it and the way in which Marsden did it are, are different and complementary in some ways. And Marsden moves beyond him in some ways. And uh, I, I think Mark Knoll may have put it best that he thinks that Edwards would have loved Ian Murray's biography best of all the bi- biographies that have been written of him. Noel wrote that before Marsden came out. I think it would still probably be true that Edwards himself would prefer the uh, the Murray I biography. So. But, yeah, I, I'd, I'd uh, take Murray writing a biography of me if he liked me. <laughs> yeah, that's true. If he didn't like you, no, <laughs> that would not go well. <laughs> if you're an Arminian, you don't want that happening. Yeah, sorry, Billy Graham. Um, but I think what Marsden did is just such an interesting thing of, of being able to tell a story to keep the narrative going, but also to do an intellectual biography and to have mm-hmm. absorbed all of that high level material that Edwards was able to produce. Um, one that I would recommend uh, for people is, is now in one volume by John Piper, 21 servants of sovereign joy, mm-hmm. which That's is great. the swans are not silent series, uh, seven volumes basically packed into one. Those are not your full length biographies. Those are not your critical historians biographies, but I think they're just great launching points to get uh, a life in brief and to use that as a, an entryway into somebody else's life and to, to go on and you know read the primary sources that, that uh, Piper read. Uh, I really enjoyed reading Alistair McGrath's biography of J.I. Packer, um, McGrath essentially says this is not only a biography of Packer, but it's a biography of 20th century evangelicalism. Um, so I, I love thinking about that world. Another kind of dual uh, pairing would be Grant Wacker's, not a biography technically of uh, Billy Graham, but a study of Graham's life and work um, paired with Ralph Martin's uh, big biography of Billy Graham. To me, what Martin William did there Martin. is William, William Martin. Martin. That's right. Yep. yep. Um, to me, it's almost an exemplar of Christian biography writing. Hmm. Uh, incredibly well researched, a great narrative. Um, I, I learned a lot from that biography. It kind of gives an inside glance while being critical at the same time. Um, lots of little biographies that I like. I, I actually don't tend to read big biographies, but Chadwick's little biography of Augustine or Martin Marty's little biography of Luther. I, I some I like theoretically the the 800 page version of a life, but I also like to read the challenge of somebody trying to get a whole life into 150 pages. I think Kevin, you've read Paul Johnson's biography of Churchill, and mm-hmm. you know. It, 
it it takes a special talent and I don't want to say it's harder, but it's it's a different kind of challenge to say get the whole incredible life of Churchill into a slim book versus an eight volume um, version. Justin, you've you've talked with Tommy Kidd about his view on this, haven't you? In terms of biography writing? Well, he does not think there's almost ever an occasion for an 800. So he's very much against the Ron Chernow approach. And look right. at all the Tommy Kidd's amazing works. They're all shorter. Yeah. Pretty short. And that's definitely yeah, his, and his argument is just not a smart idea. Yeah. His argument is you can only read so many books and uh, I only have time for so much. Do I really want to devote uh, this number of months of my life to working through this, you know, thousand Alexander Hamilton. Yeah. Right. Yep. Those are great. You, you mentioned some of some on my list and I was actually going to say that there is a real place for those shorter biographies and the Piper biographies or an older book that people used to read uh, Warren Wearsby walking with the giants, which gave just different vignettes of, of pastors. Uh, I was going to mention the Paul Johnson Churchill volume, but, but here's some on my list. Go back to Ian Murray. And again, I know it's, it's not academic history in, in, you know, the sense that you would, want to do a, a critical biography, but uh, the Lloyd-Jones two volumes, when I read them years ago, before I was in ministry um, from Ian Murray, were very moving to me and, and you know, gave me such a, a thrill and a desire and an impetus to preach that I think Lloyd-Jones and Ian Murray probably would be very pleased that the biography would do that in a young man. And so there's a there's a place for that, even if, you know, other historians have come along and said, well, you know, he didn't walk on water and let's try to look at Lloyd-Jones from all these facets. But I love that two-volume biography. Uh, one I read last year uh, called God's Salesman on Norman Vincent Peale, I really enjoyed, maybe 300 pages or so. Norman Vincent Peale is not, not a hero of mine, of course. Uh, it helped that he was in the RCA, and so that was interesting to me as someone who was in the RCA most of my life, but it really, I knew a little bit about him, but it helped me make sense of 20th century evangelicalism. And in doing so, it helped me make sense of 21st century evangelicalism. And it was well-written, crisply paced. Uh, I'm sure you guys have read Alan Gelzo's Redeemer President on Abraham Lincoln. There's yeah. so many biographies of Lincoln. I love that one. Yeah. Um, he's one of my favorite authors and historian. And I got to the end and of course, you know, I, I'm just hoping that he doesn't die, but I know he does. Yeah, and, I know, I know. And and I want him to, you know, become a born again Christian. And I know there's a lot of debate about that, but certainly Gelzo, who is a Christian, you know, his take is uh, there's not the the evidence there that you might want to see for Lincoln's conversion. But I love that book, uh, Adoniram Judson to the Golden Shore, great missionary biography. Uh, one that is uh, a memoir, so I guess more of an autobiography, but years ago I read Clarence Thomas's memoir, My Grandfather's Son. And I know people have different opinions of Clarence Thomas. I, I, I have a lot of respect for him, but I, it, it was a very moving biography. Uh, what a great title. Yeah. Also, what a great title for a book. Yeah. Um, John, you know, David McCullough, of course, everything he writes is readable and good. So John Adams... Um, Peggy Noonan's book, When Character Was King on Reagan, you know, that's that, that's a good title. 
be good for people to remember yeah. that title when character Would, was king yeah. uh, on Reagan. Of course, it's a very sympathetic view of Reagan and it's um, she's Wonderful a great writer. Great writer. Wonderful writer. Yeah. So uh, lots of good biographies out there. So here's my fun question for you as we are nearing the close. Uh, if the Lord gave you the time and the opportunity, who would you like to write a biography on? Present company excluded. Um, so my, mine's mine's easy and obvious, and I really do hope the Lord gives me the opportunity to do this in, let's say, five to ten years. But uh, th- there has not been a a proper biography of John Witherspoon written since 1925. There's been lots of little things, and there's a, a lot of good scholarly work being done. But just a biography. People go back to the Ashbel Green biography in the middle of the 19th century or the Varnum Lansing Collins biography, President Princeton, who wrote it in 1925. And after that, th- those those are it. So I would love to take uh, what I learned and still have to learn about John Witherspoon. I don't know if it has bestseller written all over it. Uh, I'll read it if you yeah, send me a copy. I'm not quite sure if it should be a, a critical biography in the academic sense or, or more of a readable, or I I guess I'd like to find that mythical space somewhere in between there, but I would, I would love to do that in, and go back to the archives and uh, learn more about the second half of his career and write a a proper John Witherspoon biography. Uh, Colin. Oh man. What a great question. I love this question. Uh, First though, before we get that cliffhanger, I want to give a special shout out in terms of biographies forthcoming book from the Gospel Coalition, 12 Faithful Women, edited by Melissa Kruger and Kristen Wetherill. A lot of these shorter biographies like we've been talking about there, reminiscent of Piper's biographies there. It's a companion to the 12 Faithful Men book that Mm -hmm. Jeff Robinson and I had done uh, for Baker on a number of different pastors and what we can learn from how they suffered well. I tell you what, the the women (laughs) that are profiled, some, some famous ones, less famous ones in there like Corey Ten Boom and Amy Carmichael and folks like that. Those stories are just gonna, uh, they're just, they're very moving. And I think it's good timing for those. Okay. So back to your question. You know, I, I love that. I didn't, I mean, I guess that Kevin, I could have guessed yours in that case, but um, you know, if I'm, I'll work through this. My grandpa was my hero. I love, I, I would love to write a biography of him. Uh, it's just, you know, it's not going to happen for a lot of different reasons, but my grandmother wrote kind of a, her mother's memoir. Um, my grandfather actually wrote kind of a bit of a family history. I mean, if you're talking about just what, what would I love to do? I'd love to do that, but more, more likely somebody's going to have to read, write a biography of Tim Keller. It's probably not going to be me, but somebody's going to need to do that. And uh, now would be a good time for somebody to start doing yeah. that. But here's the last two that I think you guys will be interested in. Nobody ever did a biography. Wait, is some I heard something about this. Somebody's writing a biography of Carl Henry. Is that right? Somebody. Or, do, do you guys not know? If you guys don't know, it probably isn't happening. I heard that, but. I thought I did too. But there's like, there's one little sort of like guide to evangelical thinkers that was produced many years ago. Other than that, you've got an autobiography from Henry, and it's Owen's it's, written on. Yeah, you go. Oh, yeah, you've definitely got like a yeah, but his like essential evangelical is mostly right. about about Akinge, um, or, or am I thinking wrong title there? Anyway, there's like a bunch of you know multi-author 
contributions. Lots but there's about no, the rise of neo-evangelicalism that yeah. includes Henry, but not a biography. Hmm, yeah. No, not that I've seen. The autobiography is not great. I mean, it'd be good source material, but it's it's too bitter and it's too focused on other things. And then last is, I think, Kevin, you might, might appreciate David Wells. Yeah, yeah. I told you you need to go. I know. I know. I, I have every intent to do it. With David Wells. I know, I, but I, that would be that would be fun. So that's my answer. I didn't give you one. I gave you like five. But and he's got a story growing up in mm-hmm. in Africa and then yeah. communist and then John Stott and he's got a more interesting life than some of us. Yeah. Justin Taylor, have you ever thought about writing a biography of anyone? <laughs> I'm planning to do a memoir. Uh, it's probably my lifelong <laughs> dream to do. Yeah. No, I want to be you like Colin. Have- Colin breaks all the rules, so I want to go back to the biography one because there are two others that I didn't mention. My favorite genre is narrative nonfiction about people who've been assassinated. I know that's a pretty (laughs) niche topic, but James Swanson's Manhunt. That's really good. uh, He lives next door to Mark Dever. What's that? He lives next door to Mark Dever. Yeah, does he still? I'm hearing that. Yeah. To me, that was a revelation to read that book of just what somebody could do in terms of putting you into the scene and on the trail. I I was just so mesmerized by his writing and his abilities there. He did one on the, the Kennedy assassination, which is not nearly as good. Uh, and then Hellhound on his trail by Hampton Sides. Oh, uh, similar sort of cinematic feel to it with wonderful research and incredible writing. So those we need a separate... Great- we need a separate podcast on narrative nonfiction. That's okay. true. Assassinations, or can we broaden it? <laughs> Not just assassinations. No, okay. Just grisly assassinations. That's yes, all right. Uh, two two biographies that I've thought about writing, which I don't think I ever will. One is Jim Elliott, and the other is Johnny Erickson Tata. Hmm. And uh, the reason is that. I don't know if anybody will actually write either of those because they've already had like the official accounts. Johnny did her own autobiography and has done several of them. Um, But I just think some of this overlaps with my interest in 20th century evangelicalism, but she's lived such an incredible life and it's so different in terms of a story, but we really just have her firsthand account, but for somebody to do the full research of her full life and, uh, and to do a critical biography. And then I think Jim Elliott was a similar thing with Elizabeth Elliott. She kind of said, here is the version of his life. And uh, nobody's actually gone back and, and done something more critical and tried to put it into wider context. Mm. Um, so those are two that I think are interesting. The other one that comes to mind for me is Bob Jones Sr., uh, who I think is just a fascinating figure. And uh, actually John Matsko, uh, I think Paul Matsko's uncle, who's a historian at Bob Jones University, has actually written it, but has not been able to get it published. Um, but I think I think that's just a fascinating uh, period in evangelical history as um, evangelicals and fundamentalists are kind of united. And then Billy Graham causes this separation, or Bob Jones causes the separation. I just, I've thought a lot about that period in history, and I think that's always fun to explore. All right. Last question coming full circle to fat man touchdown dances. Uh, 
secret question. You did not know I was asking this question. Here goes. But I'm sure you've dreamt of of this. If you could be exceptionally world-class good at one athletic endeavor, what would it be? What, 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 what is your dream? Okay. So here's mine. I would love to be never. It was my dream. Never was, uh, within, uh, anything close. I wanted to be a brilliant runner. And if, if you could give me one, uh, athletic moment in the sun, it would be, you know, the Olympics, maybe the, uh, the four by four anchor leg chasing down the other countries running around. I love, well, I, I've always thought that, that, uh, okay, Mr. Mr. <laughs> Spiking that was Justin, by the way. Don't you like my narrative nonfiction and there's people shooting at you? Okay, I'll try to spice it up. But running running should people be do. well, yeah, running should be more popular. How can people not get into running? It's so simple. People go, who's the fastest? It's simple. You should you should get into it. So some sort you can of drive. <laughs> we don't need to run. <laughs> not hunters and gatherers. <laughs> It is a it is a sport you can do anywhere. I, I don't I didn't say that anyone can do it, Justin, but you can do it anywhere. You just need shoes. So the telegraph, okay, fine. The telegraph I'm, ended the marathon. I, we don't I'm, need it anymore. We have the telegraph. I'm feeling properly shamed. We're we are gonna have a whole podcast on exercise books, okay? Because I have read no. a lot of them. No, I have a whole shelf behind me of running books and swimming books. Okay, so some sort of running, maybe the 5,000, maybe the 10,000 meters, not a sprint, 400 is as long, as short as I can go. That that would be my athletic dream. Justin, I know that you have something much, much better. <laughs> Pole vaulting? <laughs> Cornhole? <laughs> Cornhole. Yes. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's hard not to think about Michael Jordan right now because I've watched... Many too Whenever many hours of my you, life. It's hard not to think of Michael Jordan. I agree. I know. <laughs> It'd be fun to dunk from the free throw line. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm gonna pick like returning uh, a punt return for a touchdown. Mm. To hear the to, to get around the edge and to hear the crowd just going nuts and running so fast that even the fastest guy in the field cannot catch you. You're the Devin Hester of podcasting. <laughs> yes. yes. I remember Taylor, one time. Ridiculous. ridiculous. That was for you, Kevin. Thank you. For one time in high school, they let me like line up in the backfield and I, I ran as hard as I could. And it, it felt like I was running in quicksand. I was so slow. <laughs> I was just immediately pummeled in the backfield. So to be able to do a pull a Devin Hester, that would be, be great. Amazing. Do you know I played one year of football? I played eighth grade football, and the thing I was undoubtedly best at was running the warm up lap. <laughs> it's like this is great. I'm going to be really good. I'm beating everyone in the warm up lap. But then it turns out in football, people also hit you, and that was the one part of football yeah. on offense and defense I didn't enjoy. My you seemed like you could have been a good punter. Well, thank you. Yeah, or or maybe uh, had the physique to uh, be a decoy for the PAT. 
All right, Colin, bring us home with this outstanding into an otherwise outstanding show. I think, uh, I think just the, the sound, the feeling of just being able to hit a home run uh, of just being able to turn around a 98 mile an hour fastball, you know, in a clutch moment and just, yeah, I mean, I, I was probably better at baseball than any other sport, but obviously not good enough to actually really matter in any way. And so that's the one I can relate to. And just the, you know, the, the, the atmosphere of a major league ballpark, the, the, the wooden bat, the sound, the way that great hitters talk Mm. about when you hit it well, you don't even feel it. I mean, that would be, that would be pretty cool. I mean, I can think of so many different things because I love sports, but that's, that's the one that I can relate to in the smallest way. Um, but also would just have the coolest path. I have no idea. I mean, being a quarterback that I, that doesn't make any sense to me at all. I could never do that. I can't think of that. Like Patrick Mahomes or something else. I'm somebody else I'm grateful for, but I don't know what it's like to be able to run around to be able to throw the ball left-handed or being able to throw it without looking or being, I mean, I guess that would be cool also to be Patrick Mahomes. But other than that, just being able to hit a home run, you hit it so well, you don't even feel it. That'd be pretty cool. All right. Well, thank you, men, for sharing your hopes and dreams and dashing mine. We will line up for a race at some time in the future. You can tackle me if you can catch me. But uh, until next time, I hope that our listeners out there will glorify God and enjoy him forever and read some good books. See you later. Yeah.